And this morning we had the opportunity to sing the first hymn of the series, I Know Whom I Have Believed. Uh, and, and you have to pronounce it that way because otherwise the melody doesn't match properly. Um, but also, uh, it's also known by um, I Know Not Why God's Wondrous Grace is often uh, referred to that as the title as well in verse 1. Um, but you know me, and I can't talk about a hymn or a song like this without also talking about the person who wrote it. And providing context for that. So, part of the time, uh, most of the most of the things I'm going to talk about for the author aren't obviously original research, but uh, you could find some of this information online in a few different sources. So, I'm just sharing some of the highlights of the things that I found there um, before we actually talk about the song itself. If you've never heard of the author, his name is Daniel Webster Whittle. He was born in November 22, 1840 in Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts, um, and he also died in Massachusetts when he was 60 in 1901. When he was, uh, when he was a little older, uh, when he was working as a young man, at midnight one night when he was acting as a night watchman is when his spiritual journey really began. He was working in the Chicago Wells Fargo Bank, and he said, I went into the vault and in the dead silence of that quietest of places, I gave my life to my Heavenly Father to use as he would. And that was really the beginning of his spiritual journey. In 1861, he married his wife, Abby Hansen, the night before he deployed with Company B of the 72nd Illinois Infantry to serve in the American Civil War. He was wounded at Vicksburg, and he marched with General William Tecumseh Sherman through Georgia, Whittle was breveted with the rank of major at the end of the war and is still widely known among hymnologists as Major Whittle. When he was sent home wounded from Vicksburg after he was shot in his sword arm while leading a charge in place of his wounded captain, he met Dwight L. Moody for the first time. And Mr. Moody was the man who greatly influenced the rest of his career and his life. He settled into Chicago to work for the Elgin Clock Company, but Moody successfully encouraged him to go into evangelistic work. One of Whittle's war experiences served as the basis for the gospel song Hold the Fort by Philip Paul Bliss, and Major Whittle later edited a biography of Philip Bliss. They worked together, writing and singing some, and Major Whittle wrote his first hymn in 1875, Christ is All, and he gave it to Mr. Bliss to set to music, and after his death, the words actually were set to music by James McGranahan, who also wrote the tune for today's hymn. I mentioned after Philip's death, because that was actually a also, that was a tragic experience that Daniel went through. Um, in 18, uh, actually, let me make sure I have the year correct. Um, in 1876, Philip Pliss died in the Ashtabula River Bridge disaster. Um, where a bridge, collapsed, a bridge collapsed into the river and lots of people died in that train accident. Um, he was on his way to a Dwight Moody um, event or meeting when he died. Um, and so that was also a tragedy that uh, Major Whittle carried in his life. Major Whittle wrote, um, let's see, Philip Bliss wrote lots of hymns like Hold the Fort, Almost Persuaded, and he even wrote the tune for Horatio Spafford's song, It Is Well With My Soul. Of about the 200 hymns that Major Whittle wrote, uh, I Know Whom I Have Believed and Showers of Blessing are among probably the most familiar in the church. Whittle 
in speaking of hymns, once said, I hope that I will never write a hymn that does not contain a message. There are too many hymns that are just a meaningless jingle of words. To do good, a hymn must be founded on God's word and carry the message of God's love. He also felt that the dignity of a gospel hymn deserved the best he could give, not only in material, but also in construction. And he was seemingly successful because when I began looking for scriptural connections to the words in this hymn, I realized that we could have spent the entire month studying this hymn. Um, there's just an endless array of connections and layers that we could explore and study. And that's when I realized someone like Major Whittle, who was 43 when he wrote the hymn, had gone through lots of life experiences. He'd fought in war and been wounded, married, um, come to Christ, worked in evangelism, the tragedy of his friend's death. All of those experiences, all of the scriptures and biblical lessons that he studied in his teaching and speaking and singing, and all of those were brought into his works. And so every line that he wrote, much like when we read the New Testament authors, every line they wrote was invested with just a whole lifetime of experience, both his experiences, the experience of his believers around him, the experiences of the scriptures. Um, and so it's no surprise that someone who's able to create a truly artistic work invests many, many layers of meaning and, uh, and lessons into them. So I'll talk just a little bit about the music, and I'm not a musician um, or a music critic, so this is really just me reading some information that I found to talk a little bit about the tune that we're familiar with in the song that helped make it successful. Um, it was written by the music publisher and song composer James McCranahan. It's been extremely popular in the United States and, in fact, has been found in every Southern Baptist hymnal since 1904, the United Methodist hymnal, and over 200 other hymnals in the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. The tune of this hymn sounds like a typical gospel hymn tune with modest harmony and simple melodic lines. Dotted rhythms give it some added interest, and the tune is written in an easy-to-sing D major, not too high or low for congregational singing, and easily sung in four-part harmony. The direct quotation of scripture results in an extended phrase in the refrain. The Psalter Hymnal Handbook praises the effectiveness of continuing the long phrase by using staggered breathing during the refrain, which can create a musical communion of saints by singing without a break in sound. And I think we can reflect that when we sing the song and hear it, it is one of those hymns that really just lifts up your heart and helps direct your focus towards God. So as we mentioned, 2 Timothy 1.12 is that verse where the refrain comes from, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And that's in the King James Version. So the context for when Paul wrote that letter, his second letter that we have to Timothy, is that Paul was back in prison. Christianity was no longer considered a sect of Judaism, which was a state-recognized religion, but it was now considered a cult that threatened Rome's stability and Rome's gods. Paul was quite certain that he would be executed and that only God could intervene. And Paul felt with a growing certainty that his race had been run. But the words that he wrote in 2 Timothy were not melancholy at all. And let's read the hymn, I know whom I have believed. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how his saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. 
I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me. Of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the vale with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So for today's lesson, because we don't have hours to spend, most of my time will be focused on verse 1 and on the refrain. Um, The way the song is written in those verses, it's asking a question or a challenge, expressing doubt or real circumstance, and then we go to the refrain where we hear the answer and we hear the hope, and then we have another question and we hear the hope again and we go back and forth, and it builds that momentum and that emotional uplifting Um, For today's lesson, we're going to cover each verse, and then we'll end with the refrain. Um, So if you feel some boiling turmoil in your soul, just know that we're going to get to the refrain at the end. Um, But those verses in the middle that we won't spend quite as much time on, I would challenge you this week to listen to this song. Read the hymn, read the words, think about them, and maybe see if you can find some scriptural connections that we didn't explore, some basis that lays under these words that Major Whittle wrote. So we'll begin with verse 1. Um, And my mission today isn't to provide a lot of original content. Uh, My role here is really to, um, well, let's use a musical analogy. Um, A lot of times you might see a musical piece, whether it's for a film score or a symphony, you might see that there's a composer who wrote the music. Well, that's not me today. But you also might see somewhere in there, we'll say, arranged by. (laughs) Someone who assisted the composer in arranging the music for performance. So in a way, I think that's my role today, is I've arranged these verses that Major Whittle wrote and the verses from the Bible that the authors of the scriptures have written and tried to pull them together so we can look at them side by side. Um, So let's read verse 1. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy... Christ in love, redeem me for his own. Let's talk about that first part. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. In John 1:14, we hear about that happening. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verses 16 through 17, for from his fullness, we have all received grace Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. In the letter from which this hymn springs, 2 Timothy, uh, in chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, we hear Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So you're starting to hear a little bit of the the background here that Jesus did come for us with his grace, Um, and it's because we ask that question, why did he make it known to us? We hear a little hint in that verse here, because we've been called to a holy calling. It hasn't been for its own end. It's because God has a purpose for us. 
In 2 Timothy, the next chapter, uh, 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we're hearing another hint of why God would make this known to us, why God would redeem us. He remains faithful. Faithful. It's because he's faithful. For he cannot deny himself. I want you to hold that phrase in your head, in your mind, for a little bit later. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We hear that echoed again, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, why would he show this grace to us? Why would he reach out to us who are unworthy? Because he has work for us to do. And then I love this in Zechariah uh, chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. Here's a little bit of our answer. We talked about God's faithfulness. Well, in the Old Testament, he said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness." So God is faithful, and he said in the Old Testament, I will pour out in the house of David a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. But there's something interesting in this verse that stands out to me that is humbling and really humiliating as a member of the human race. God is implying here, he says, I'm going to pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Jesus, they'll mourn him. In the, in the story of creation, God has to give us grace just so that we'll recognize how much he suffered. God, the father who sent his son to suffer and redeem us, went unheralded. He wasn't accepted by his people. God has to reach out of his way to push us, to beg us to please mourn his son, to please recognize the pain and the suffering that he took on for us. And that's humbling. God has given us grace so that we'll recognize what grace even is. Nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. In Job, Job echoes this when he calls out, how, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. In Matthew, in Matthew a few times we hear this. In chapter 3, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
in chapter 8, the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. So we hear that echo, that feeling, it's common. When we, when we see who God is, we recognize that we're unworthy. But listen to this story in Genesis with Jacob, where we start to hear a little bit of an echo on why God would accept someone who's not worthy. In chapter 32, when Jacob is afraid for his life because he's betrayed his brother Esau, and now he's coming back, and he knows what he deserves, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. The mother's with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is right in this verse. He says, I know I'm not worthy. Not only am I not worthy for my brother, I'm not worthy for you, God. The very smallest thing you've ever done for me is beyond what I deserve. But you said that you would do this for me. And God is faithful. And so why would God make his grace known to us? Why would he redeem us for his own? If for no other reason than because he said he would. In Hebrews 12, we hear a really neat uh, picture here. It, it's referencing the time when the children of Israel were next to the mountain, where God's presence was in fire and flame and smoke, and they had to create rolls so that no one would even touch the mountain because God's holy presence was so invested in that place that if you weren't worthy, you would touch it and die. So in Hebrews, listen to this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So even though you're not worthy, and even though God's presence is so far beyond us, we hear that starting to turn there and tell us, but you've been invited to the city of the living God. You've been invited in to a celebration where the angels have put on their best clothing, a feast, a gathering, and we have been brought there because the blood of Christ is more powerful than all of those sacrifices before. The blood of Christ is crying out for redemption and for grace. Verse 2. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I, just, I love these verses here in Psalm 33, uh, starting at verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue 
Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Can you hear some of the parts of the verse showing up in this verse? Believing in God brings peace. Here, the king, all of your might, all of the, all of the toils and efforts by the soldiers and the warriors are nothing compared to the love of God, which brings peace and victory. In Romans 5, verse 8 through 11, we hear that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, from him, saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul is pointing out those moments of doubt, those moments of fear, if God was willing to save you when you were in sin, if God was willing to die for you, then how could you ever doubt now that you are with him that he would protect you, that he will see you redeemed? Mark 16, and uh, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so we see the heart of the question right here is whoever believes will be saved. In Luke 7, there's a story here um, in chapter, in verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Believing in his word wrought peace in her heart. Back to 2 Timothy in chapter 1 verse 6. Paul instructs Timothy I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 3. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. Isaiah 11, the first two verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. In Nehemiah 9, speaking of the time when they were in the wilderness, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Isaiah 11.1 1. 
So we hear the story from the Old Testament that God is using his spirit to direct and guide and to lead them to faith. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 19 through 20, they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. You remember wind is ruach in Hebrew, which is spirit. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. His spirit moves like a stream and like a wind, helping us to hear and see our sin so that we can turn from transgression. In Psalm 143, David cried out, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And in Proverbs, uh, the first chapter speaking as the spirit of wisdom, says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And I just love this one single verse in Proverbs 20. It's just such an interesting phrasing. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. It's in Proverbs 20, 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word and creating faith in him. And in Romans 8, 23 through 28, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's go to verse 4. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me. Of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. In Romans 8, 17, we hear, that some of the things in store for us may feel ill. If children, then heirs, and if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've talked about it in the Paul series over the summer. Paul held it very close to his heart that he had the opportunity to suffer as Jesus suffered because he felt that that made him part of what Jesus wanted him to do and be. In Philippians 1, 19 through 22, he makes it very clear. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I choose, I cannot tell. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I feel like Paul almost went out of his way here to make it hard to understand what he's saying so that we would look at this paragraph and we would see that suffering and comfort are together in the same. And that when we live in Christ and we carry this promise for him, we can sing and we can say, like Major Whittle said, whether I have good or ill, we remember that we're going to see his face. And so we're comforted in the midst of a storm, in the midst of trial. In Revelation 22, 4, talking about the Lamb of God's servants, we hear this verse, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In verse 5, Whittle writes, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. Matthew 24, 36 through 44, we hear Jesus echo this. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of man. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken. And he says... In 40, verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not have his house broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's also a mention here, that those words, if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. Veil, it means valley. And I see this picture here. We know we've read the, we've heard about the prophecies, the end time prophecy uh, scriptures, the apocalyptic writings in the Bible, the whole industry that's developed around trying to prognosticate exactly how the end times will happen for us. And I think Major Whittle is is acknowledging that he's not quite sure here. If I walk the valley in the valley with him, but I, I hear a reference to the promise that we have. I think it was in Joel or Habakkuk that in the end times, just like God parted the Red Sea for Moses to lead the children of Israel out of slavery, there will come a time when God will actually part the mountains so that his people will escape their enemies into, into safety. So even though we often sing of the valley as being a place of despair contrasted with the mountaintop, in this case, the valley is a place of safety. Or if we'll just be drawn up in a moment to meet him in the air when he comes and the trumpet sounds... Either way, he's calling out that he's still going to be waiting on God. And I love that imagery because looking back at the last verse, thinking about comfort and suffering, 
and you see these here, and it's easy for us to say that we would choose to meet him in the air, but to walk through the mountains that God has torn apart so that you could be safe, I don't think that's any, any worse than being drawn up in the air in a moment, perhaps. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Whether I have golden days or weary ways, I know whom I have believed. If I don't understand how this peace exists in my heart or how to get that peace, if I don't understand how I come to faith with him, if I don't know when he's going to come, when I'm paying attention or when I'm not, if I'm going to be set, pulled into heaven in a moment peacefully or if I'm going to fight a battle for him on earth, I know who I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 14, the context around this verse. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In Psalm 10, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, you note mischief and vexation that you might take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. I hear David saying some of the same things. I don't understand, God. Why aren't things coming? Why isn't justice coming? But I do know that you'll bring it, even if I can't see it right now. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We're hearing that reminder there. He did this because he loves you, and he is faithful. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, in chapter 4, verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. In 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20, he said, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions in what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have been swerved from the faith. 
And he also writes to Timothy in his second letter again, chapter 2. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And in 1 Peter 4.19, Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So that image of Paul talking about comfort and affliction and kind of weaving them together so we can't tell them apart anymore, I think may help lead us to a place where we understand that good and ill aren't necessarily what we think they are. You may be suffering because it's according to God's will. You may be suffering because he needs you to be right where you are. What did Paul say? So that you can help comfort others who will go through it in the future. But he, it may be because he's begging you, like we talked about in the first uh, verse, he may be begging you just to pay attention to his son, to mourn his son. He may be poking us in the back to turn us and remind us what is real and what is important in life. And it may be because you're fighting on his side that the whole story of Scripture is true and that by suffering, you're learning that it is actually true. You are learning that there is a battle, that there is good and there is evil. You are learning that you are engaged on the side of what is right, that you are fighting for God and you are suffering. And all of these scriptures that we've been told that we will face trial, maybe we can take joy in the fact that the scriptures are true. I know it because I'm suffering. And I also know it because I feel the comfort and the peace in my heart in the midst of the suffering. To keep that which I have committed, to keep that, I am that. There's a confusing simplicity to the mystery of Christ's atonement and our redemption. He entrusted me with the spirit of his life to carry in me. And I have entrusted him with the spirit of my life. There's a reciprocity. There's a unification and a union here. Do you doubt that God will be faithful to himself? In 2 Timothy said he cannot deny himself. If God's spirit is in me and my spirit is in him, then how can I doubt that God will protect me? How can I doubt that what comes to me is what should be coming, what will serve the kingdom? And how could I call that anything but good? See what he's done for his son, Jesus. The worst trials and the worst suffering that a human could suffer carrying our spiritual burden at the same time of his physical torture. But you can see where he is. You can see that he's been risen. He's been glorified. He's been handed the keys of judgment. He's been handed authority over the world. He's been handed all power. And you have the same spirit as the Son. He is in us, and we are in him. Unto him against that day. That's the day of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 4.1, he said, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you faithful, he will surely, is faithful, he will surely do it. We hear about the day of the Lord in a few other passages in Joel 3. 
Verse 18, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they've shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. God promises, I will avenge their blood Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion, the city of God, the living God, where you have been invited. In Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, night of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In Ezekiel, we hear his vision recorded in chapter 47. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the Araba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes, and on the banks and on both sides of the river they will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. The fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And perhaps the most famous passage of Scripture that we've heard that reminds us of God's faithfulness despite our failings, despite the world's threats, despite our doubts or uncertainty, is in Romans 8, chapter 31 through 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Just before he died, Major Whittle wrote a poem about while suffering from illness. If you listen to his poem, he refers to the bells of the high priest that were worn on the hem of their robes. 
Reportedly, he thought of this upon hearing the chiming of a clock in his room. If we listen here, we can hear, uh, hear that the hymn he had written decades earlier still rang true in his heart as he wrote these words. Swift, with melodious feet, the midnight hours pass by. As with each passing bell so sweet, I think my Lord draws nigh. I see heaven's open door. I hear God's gracious voice. I see the blood washed around the throne, and with them I rejoice. It may be that these sounds are the golden bells so sweet, which tell me of the near approach of the heavenly high priest's feet. Not every night is thus, some nights with pain are drear. Then I join my moan with creation's groan and the chimes I do not hear. But the Lord remains the same. Faithful he must abide. And on his word, my soul, I'll rest, for he is by my side. Some midnight sleepless saints, made quick by pain to hear, shall join the glad and welcome cry. The bridegroom draweth near. Then I shall see his face, his beauteous image bear. I'll know his love and wondrous grace, and in his glory share. So sing my soul in praise as bells chime o'er and o'er. The coming of the Lord draws near when time shall be no more.